Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. The massacre of student protesters at Thammasat University by police and royalist paramilitaries on 6 October 1976 is perhaps the most infamous incident in modern Thai political history. Yet at the same time, it is one of the most problematic for historians, not to mention the survivors and families of the victims who have had to grieve in silence due to the stigma surrounding their children's connections to the event. And looming over everything has been the question of the monarchy's involvement in what happened that morning. Now a remarkable new book comes to terms both with the events of that day and with the silences that have enveloped it, written by someone who was a witness to what happened and whose life has been shaped by it. The book is Moments of Silence, the unforgetting of the October 6, 1976 massacre in Bangkok, published in 2020 by the University of Hawaii Press. Its author is Tong Chai Winichikun, an emeritus professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he's speaking with me, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University and co-host of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Tong Chai, it's an honour to have you on to talk about Moments of Silence. Thank you. Tong Chai, I've not asked this of an interviewee before, but would you lead us into the contents of the book by reading from the prologue? Let me start by speaking in Thai, exact words in Thai, and then I read in English. พี่ๆตำรวจครับกรุณาหยุดยิงผู้เราเถอะครับเราชุนนุ้มอย่างสงบไม่มีอาวุธตัวแทนของเรากำลังเจรจากับรัฐบาลอยู่เพื่อหา
It was a combination of long series of events. This is not just a sudden violence during those years. There had been violence before that, at least for a couple of years before that, but not the same scale, not the massacre as it took place on that morning. Let, let me read some from chapter 2. In the early hours of October 6, 1976, the police and paramilitary groups surrounded Tamasat University, where four to 5,000 people gathered peacefully overnight to protest the return of the former dictator. The morning was tense. Two weeks earlier, two activists had been hanged while putting up protest posters. Two days before uh, the massacre, a student skit that reenacted the hanging of the activists has been targeted by the military propaganda machine accused of mocking an effigy of the crown prince, by the way, who is the current king of Thailand. The student had never had opportunity to rebut the allegation. At 5.30 a.m., a rocket-propelled bomb was fired into the crowd inside Tamasat University. Four people were killed instantly. Dozens were injured. The massacre has begun. Neil Yulevich of Associated Press who has spent four years as a photographer in the Vietnam War, described the shooting as more bedlam than, than battle. Inside Tamasad University, a few dead bodies bearing the marks of gunfire grenades were dragged along the soccer field by pieces of cloth wrapped around their necks. One was a friend of mine, Jarupong Tongsin. On the other side, a person was beaten before the group of men gleefully hanged him to death. Another chased down, kicked and punched his body too. Were hanged. In 1977, the Pulitzer Prize winning photo, a dead body hanging from the tree was beaten with a folding chair by an angry man. Another man then took a turn. Altogether, five bodies were hung from the trees encircling Sanam Luang, the huge public space that connects Tamasat University with the Grand Palace. This gruesome event is a combination of the, I would say, the conflict between the student and popular movement during the three years after October 14 in 1973 that the student uprising successfully ousted the former dictator. That event, October 14 in 1973, the uprising, took place after almost continuous military rule for 23 years. So the uprising in 73 is the break of the dam, the thirst for idea, the thirst for new knowledge, the thirst for freedom, for expression, freedom of gathering. It happened during those three years. But then the right wing strike back, partly and importantly because of the Indochina revolution of the mid of 1975 to the end of 1975. The palace, the military, and many other right-wing uh, forces, political forces in Thailand, they were afraid that the student movement in general, not just in Bangkok, rather rapidly radicalized. They are afraid that the student movement was a proxy of the communists. And keep in mind at that time, there are a lot of talking in the world that Thailand would be the next domino after the Indochina country. So right-wing movement, right-wing organizations, and uh, state mechanism of all kinds, especially the ISOC, I mean, the anti-communist organization of the army, began to organize many movements and strike back. Then the event that I talk about, the return of the former dictator, and the hanging of the uh, two protesters who tried to put up the posters, and the skit that I read 
a moment ago. They're part of the protest against the return of the former dictator. But in a way, it, it's a kind of plan. It's a kind of event that engineered toward a coup. But what we didn't expect is the killing, is a massacre of that scale in the morning of October 6th. And among the many unanswered questions about the massacre, you identify 13 significant ones, including the one that you mentioned already, whether the attack was planned or not. What parts the monkhood and the monarchy respectively had in it? Who gave the orders? Why did the civilian government not intervene? What did the US know? What did the Communist Party of Thailand know? Who, other than the police, did the killing? And perhaps most extraordinarily, who did they kill? Can we start with the last of these or the last two of these and see where they take us? I was astounded to learn that the famous photograph of the lynching that you mentioned already neither the student hanged nor the chair guy have ever been identified. So why is it that the identities of those involved, the victims and perpetrators, remain obscured up until now? And how does that go to the idea of silence that pervades the contents of the book? I can't explain why. It's still a mystery to me. Officially, 41 among the protesters were killed. There are still six people we have not been able to identify. One of them is the person hanged in the New Yulovich police prize photo. We call for, we ask anybody who thinks they know this person. Nobody come, comes out, no. The chair guy, the guy who beat up the body with a folding chair, it's hard to ask them to come forward. We try to find, anybody knows him, send us a message. Nobody. If you look at the picture, there's a, a boy who laughed, enjoyed the hanging scene that he saw. We also asked anybody knows the boy, and we are not going to go after these people for, for revenge. No, no. We want to interview, we want to talk to them, but no. The mystery, as I said in the book, is telling, is telling that in the past 40-something years, there must be something going on that people who might know them are not willing to come forward. Even the relative of people who were killed. In the past five years, we launched a project called Documentation on October 6th. I have a team to go out, interview, recording their words, we can identify about two-thirds of them. One-third, we still can't find them, I mean, the family. Two-thirds, we can. Half of the two-thirds, which means one-third, agreed to talk, recording the video. We put on the website, DOCSIC, D-O-C-T-6.com, documentation, October6.com. But one-third, some of them even beg us, don't interview them, don't recording anything, some of them willing to talk in private, but not any, on any record. Some of them beg us not to go to visit or to see them again, leave them alone, because they know that the issue remains very sensitive. They don't want trouble. There is a fascinating, really compelling chapter late in the book where you write of efforts to locate and speak to some of the perpetrators. Can you say a bit about the experiences you actually had in these encounters, which really are quite diverse? 
In a way, I I believe that I myself get over the uh, this trauma. No, I can't say I get over it. No, I still cry many times. <laughs> I still think about the event, literally every day, forty years already. I still think about it every day. But I I can I mean get over it to the extent that I at some point in the early two thousand. It just came to my mind that I want to talk to them, starting from a few who became public figures, such as they they ran for the seat in the parliament. So I contact a few of them. Most public figures don't say anything much, because I, I don't lie to them. I'm going to write a book. They say something safe, something plain, not interesting. So I search for the right wing who are much less known, who I know at the time, I mean, during, during the years before the massacre. I also search for the testimonies they gave to the police. So I identify them and then track down some of them, such as, for example, the group called Red Gores or Red Bulls, which is well known in Thailand as a kind of paramilitary gangster. I know some of them before the massacre, but interestingly, none of them give testimony to the police. So I get some names and get some address from the testimonies of other right-wing people, and then track down and talk to them. I have to say that it's a weird experience, and in the end, it's interesting. But I have to admit that it's not very good interview because I tend to ask general question. Don't go too deep, because I'm afraid that past conflict or past animosity might flare up. <laughs> anyway, I interview altogether about twenty something people. Only two people don't remember me. So then, cautiously ask them a few questions and let them talk. And I have to say that it's not a so good interview because I didn't follow up with more questions. I just feel like I have enough. It's a good, interesting experience because for me personally, it means I can, I can talk to, to them. I can talk to them. Yes, the only person that I came back frustrated is that I got a general, army general, who controlled the propaganda broadcast that morning and during that three years. If you look up chapter nine, is the last person I mentioned. He's kind of lecture me. This guy, this general, just frustrates me so much because. What do you mean by keep saying the same thing over and over? <laughs> He's still in the business of propaganda. There are a couple of points that you made there that I think really go to again to this topic of silence that pervades the book, and you use this unconventional term, unforgetting. What do you mean by this? It's like a like halfway between remembering and forgetting. I try to use the term that you may say a bit disruptive, because if you use usual term in Thai, there is a two phrases that involve with it called "jammaidai" "lumelong." That's more typical. "Jammaidai" "lumelong." Can't remember, can't forget. In Thai, I twist the word a bit. I call "lumelong jammaidai." We can't forget, but it's hard. To remember, so the same thing with English. I try to create a word. Unforgetting is a kind of 
awkward word. I know that it may may not be good English, but at least make it disruptive and make disruptive to their reading, disruptive to their imagination or understanding. Because I want to point to the liminal condition between remembering and forgetting. And it sounds like this conception is really emerging out of your own experiences as well. I'm wondering how much the literature of recent years on memory and memory work has informed your thinking both about your own experiences and the individual experiences of others after October 6, 1976, but also then uh, a topic that we're going to get to, the memorialization work that follows. The massacre is with me, as I said, every day, but I did not think about doing anything about it. In fact, I did do something about it already, but let's say in the way that people don't realize. I'm not going to go into details here, but I, I just say that SIMAP is about October 6th. I mentioned the word October 6th in that book, I think, only twice. In the places that are not crucial to the content of the book, but it's about October 6th. It's about, I don't know what to say, not a revenge, but a way to get back to some extent, to fight back in a big way, but in a way that people may not understand, and I like it that way. I didn't think about, write about writing about massacre until I launched the 20th anniversary of the massacre in 1996. I explained the book in so many conditions that led me to finally call my friends to come to do it. Uh, but I didn't call them to come to have a big commemoration. No, no, no. It just almost forgotten. So I call my friend, hey, come to make merit on October 6th morning. That's it. But the snowball becomes a huge event that I only understand afterward. I myself didn't understand the time. Once it becomes, I mean, bigger event, so I start writing about it. Then in the 1990s, it's also the time when memory studies become more famous academically. I have to say that I am interested in the memory studies. I, at the time, early 1990s, I had not thought about writing about the massacre. I just read and follow them just for my own, my own sake. I mean, I want to learn. But yes, many works become influential to me. I have a good colleague in Madison, Steve Stern. He works on Latin America. He opens many doors for me, read this, read that. So I am in France. I learn a lot from works in Latin America. You know, the introduction to this episode, I have to confess, Tang Chai was not my own words. I, I plagiarized parts of the introduction to a book review by one of the channel co-hosts, Patrick Jory. I thought he set the terms for our discussion very well. And I chose to read it also because Patrick continues from what I started out with by saying that the sheer savagery of the violence that day is almost beyond words. But words are all that we have for this podcast, quite literally, and also that or, or that you have as an author. So how difficult was it for you after you made that decision in 1996, if I understand correctly, to write this book, then to actually write it? Wow, that's right. It took me 20 years, almost 20 years, to the point that I almost lost confidence in producing any book. Once I started with article in 96, in Thai, in English, I thought that maybe that's it enough. A few years later, Biff Kai's read the article in English. He edited the book that published my article. He talked to me briefly that that article can be the whole book. 
that time I start thinking about what to do, what chapter, what is about including the right wing. I'm, am I ready to talk to my former enemy? So on and so forth. But I can only do research in summer when I go back to Bangkok, free from teaching. And not every summer, because some summers I have other things. 96 to 2000, I had not thought about writing this book, but I thought about doing research. I start searching for more information about my friend who died. And that time, we don't know where his body was. His name is not in the, in the list of people who died. By that time, we also know that his parents kept searching for him and they didn't find his body. But many of other friends saw that he was killed that morning. He's my friend, so I want the answer for his father. I want to find the answer for his parents, where the body of their son, where was it? What happened to it? Starting from that, reach out many directions to many other information from the basic things such as I start gathering, copying newspapers, articles, not only about my friends. I start digging up, finding a way to get to the archive of the police. The Indian, I found it in the archive of the attorney general. Uh, boxes, 70 boxes of the 1976 massacre case. And that's where I found autopsy report. And the long story cut short, it still takes me a while until finally I know what happened to him. And by that time, I also know about many other things. I also have more information to write the book. That friend who you're referring to, you mentioned already, Charupong, features in a, a chapter late in the book when you, when you also meet uh, with his parents and you recount the extraordinary efforts that they went to to try to learn what had happened to him. Why was it that they were led to believe that he was still alive? They searched for his body and they didn't find it. They went to police stations went to see pictures, went to hospitals. They couldn't find it. In the end, I, I did not know that. Did he go to one particular hospital? Because there are a number of hospitals, like a, four or five hospitals that did the autopsies for those who were killed. It looks like he didn't go to everywhere. And then his son was in, in one place. Another reason because his... <laughs> His, mm, sorry. After he was killed, his body was beaten up badly and dragged along the soccer field. Even for me, I saw the photo of the corpse. It took me many times. It's one of the ten original unidentified Thai men. Unidentified because when we get out of Tamasat that morning, we throw away our, our ID card, student card, everything. Pong also threw away his identity card. The police didn't know who is this guy. The body was I mean, hard to recognize. And then his autopsy report is one of the three that they are in the wrong order. There are three corpses where the photos and the description are not matched. So when I saw the photo, I, I think this is him, but the information inside, not him. And I assumed that the autopsy report was correct. 
It turned out, no, until I found that, okay, there are three, and I reorder. I have to reorder by myself until I get the three, met five, perfect, then it confirmed that this is him. <sighs> that alone took about, I don't remember how many years, two or three years, because I thought the autopsy reports are correct. Then uh, his father wrote uh, a memoir of his search, published in 1996 at the 20th anniversary at the commemoration. That memoir prompted me to search for information because we know that he died and his father still believes he's alive. Maybe I'm too farang, I'm too Western. I want to know the truth. I assume that his parents want to know the truth too. And uh, not knowing the truth must be agonizing for them. Because in the meantime, there were rumors that he joined the communist forces in his hometown in Isuratani in the south. Attacked the police, attacked the soldier, blah, 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 blah. Every time his parents got the news like this, they had hope. So as I, I wrote in chapter 8, I, it turns out, even today, I'm not sure I did the right thing telling them the truth. Because not knowing that their son died gave them some hope. The possibility that he is still alive, there's some hope he returns someday. After I get the autopsy in right order, I know what happened. I even check with the police what to do with the body who unidentified, where it went, what day. I told the parents. Then the reaction from his parents is clear that they know it, but they don't want it to be confirmed. So I kind of kill their hope. The book is deeply personal, but it's also a scholarly work. And, and you said you wanted to approach this research as an historian. What does that mean for you? And why not write a memoir with a commercial press for a general audience rather than this book? I'm not sure I'm right, but in my thinking is that it's easier to write a memoir. I read Primo Levi. I know that his memoir is not easy, even for like a people like him. But for me, I think the way to make the book lasting on the shelf and getting people's attention is to make the most difficult book, not the easy one. And for me, which again, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm right, but let's say my thinking is this. The difficult one is not to make it as a personal memoir, just write, 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 write what I think, what I feel, what I remember. But not writing is objectively, as a historian who study the past that I, uh, the, the historian didn't involve, no. In the end, of course, the readers are the judge. But for me, I want to test, I can write a good academic work, an acceptable, recognized academic work at the same time as the person who involved in the incident. Those remarks remind me of something that Mary Steedley wrote in her book, Rifle Reports, which I had the opportunity to interview her on before she passed away. And that was that the goal of doing this kind of work really should be the right towards difficulty. Yeah, and for me, for me, I know that it would take time because one thing I, I didn't mention, but I mean, the listeners should, should get by now. I'm, I know what they call survivor guilt. I know as a scholar that we should not have this. People understand it's not my fault, blah, 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 but it, it's hard. I hold the microphone that morning 
and a uh, lot of people never returned. I mean, never came out of Tamasak. By the same time, I'm a historian. I don't want to get easy to myself. Writing through that kind of feeling as much as possible, as open as possible, meaning I'm not hiding that. I'm part of that. In a nutshell, I want to make it most as difficult as possible. I think sign map is already difficult in a different way. Not difficult emotionally, difficult in terms of imagination. This one is more like a emotionally taxing. You've mentioned a couple of times the Communist Party and uh, people going to the jungles. You didn't go. Instead, you were in prison and on trial for your part in organizing the rally. And you recount those experiences in a middle chapter of the book. How did you end up on trial and what happened? Simple answer, because I was among the ringleaders. This is the word they use. Whatever. Uh, they arrested thousands, 3,000 something. Most of them were released a few days after that, I mean, on bail. Only 500 remained in jail for about four or five months. After that, the first decision by the uh, prosecutor not to charge those thousands and those 500, only about 20, I think 22 people remained. They're not charged yet. Anti-communist law at the time allowed us to be in prison without charge, without anything, without bail for up to one full year. So we were subjected to that law. Then after 10 months, they released for five more and uh, remaining 18 uh, were ringleaders. The fact is that not all of them, maybe half of them are not, but they are members of the student unions. You know, student unions are not all politicized. <laughs> Some of them do other things. Uh, but only half, we can say that, uh, are among the leaders. In this group also in- included three people who involved in the skit of the hanging that was accused as uh, hanging the crown prince in effigy. So the three theater people. So, yes, I'm among the 18 for reason that clear. I'm, I'm not arguing anything. I'm not the mistake. I wrote in the book the trial interesting in many ways because at the time we were still under martial law. October 6th in the evening there was a coup. Then the right-wing royalist government of Tanin Kaivichian, Tanin was picked up by the king himself according to one memoir I mentioned in the book too. It was very unpopular. So there was a coup a year later in October 1977. And that coup changed the strategy to fight the communists because after October 6th, the Communist Party got thousands of students joining them. Among the thousands, many of them, are, I would say, are among the smarter, among the cream of the intellectual class for that generation. The families at home in Bangkok, many of them are very, very affluent and famous family that their son left during the three years and went to jungle, meaning the communists got like a lot more sympathizers and supporters too. So the, uh, the military realized that this is a mistake. Of course, there's struggle among the ruling people within the military and between the, at the time we call them a kind of dove in the army versus the, the palace. The part of the dove wings of the army I mean, Indian prevail. 
Then what else during the three years is a try. As the try started and went on for about a year, it turned out the testimonies by the prosecutor witnesses review more and more and more facts about what happened before the massacre and on that morning, morning of the massacre. The more they review, it doesn't hurt us much, doesn't point to us. They didn't say anything that we have any weapons, we do anything wrong. The witnesses all talk about what happened, what the police did, why they did so and so and so and so. Even they, they compiled uh, the kind of so-called evidence that we did this and that wrong. It turns out the evidence they have are, are poor. They got it all wrong, got not only names wrong, got the events wrong, the description wrong, that kind of thing. And after the, our lawyers just... Uh, asked him a few questions, it turns out, no, no, no case against us because of the trial in the military court, not the civilian court. And the military court conducted in the military compound. But because of the pressure from the public, the military, okay, allow people to go in and, and listen. It become a public event, public forum. Even though outside the military compound, we can't say much about the, the massacre. It turns out that these people can report the trial that reveal a lot more facts about the massacre, facts and more revelation about what the army, what the police did to us on October 6th. The amnesty that followed is remarkable as well as the trial itself. Your discussion here in some ways, it dovetails with Tyrrell Habakorn's work on impunity because she says your impunity is not a matter of erasure, but to the contrary, it's constantly being inscribed and re-inscribed in official records in Thailand within ambiguous ways. And in this case, the amnesty is doing that because it's not really one amnesty, but two, isn't it? Uh Three amnesties, primarily because the first one they did right away in the evening when there was a coup. After the coup, they issued amnesty for themselves, people who involved in the coup. After that, it turns out they're not sure that the wordings in the first amnesty cover enough. <laughs> cover this and that. I mean, who cover and cover what? That's the basic things. Who were covered by the amnesty and cover what action? Though the natural say they each pass another coup orders to, to amnesty again. And in the end, the last amnesty two years later it released us, released the 18 people. That one is a kind of blanket to make sure that whoever involved, related, engaged, whatever actions, that they absolve from any wrongdoing. They say in the preamble, because the student, because us, we did something wrong because our youthful inexperience, immaturity, blah, 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 blah. But the wording in the amnesty in the end gave impunity to the military and police forces and all people who planned the massacre and the coup, even though they say that we are the wrongdoers. But the amnesty covered everybody. So the main target is to give them, give their people impunity. Looking back, it's a bad amnesty. We know that at the time we know too, but we wanted to get out. 
I'd like to go back to the unanswered questions that we had early on in our discussion and one that I'm sure many listeners have been waiting for you to speak on or waiting for me to ask a question about, which I mentioned in the introduction, and that's the question of the role of the monarchy in the massacre, in particular the former king as well as the current king who is then the crown prince. What can you tell us about their parts in what happened? What's your take on this? There are two or three things to talk on this issue. First of all, during the three years, especially from the mid-1975, approximately, when the student turned radicalized, I mean, looks like we get closer to the leftists, to the communists. I mean, we have a, like such a some song, some many books that looks like uh, similar to the communist parties, a lot of books about uh, communist China. Keep in mind that time, 1975, it's still during the Cold War. One of the main organizers, force that organized the right-wing group is ISOC, anti-communist military operation that organized the Red Bulls, the gangster, organized the civic group, right-wing civic groups, organized a popular movement or at least pretend to be a popular movement they call Novapon. I wrote in the book that Novapon seems to have millions of people of supporter members. I believe that Novapon is just a phantom organization. Does it mean that Novapon doesn't have people? Yes, they do. Who are they? They were people ISOC organized. But ISOC cannot say that these are paramilitary people in the countryside who ISOC have organized for years. They came to support Novapon. No, they have to say this is Novapon, even though Novapon itself is a kind of empty shell for ISOC to send their people to show up in force when they're in the demonstration of the right-wing people. So these are ISOC. Then what else? Who else is the main player organizing the right-wing movement? The palace. Catherine Bowie has written a book about village scout. I think we might say that village scout may be the biggest right-wing reactionary popular movement in history. Yes, I think even now I still think village scout is the biggest. To what extent the palace and ISOC or the army work together, I don't know. We can identify at least that the palace is one of the major player in organizing the right-wing movement. And the village scout is one of a few major groups that show up on the morning of October 6th. I cannot say village scout were the killer because at the time, many people who belongs or who organized by ISOC also became village scout, put it that way. So it's hard to say. But let's say, in general, there were gathering of village scout almost every day closer to October 6th. And the royal family show up explicitly. This is not COVID. This is over. This is explicit. Show up, support them, cheer them up, say things, uh, sing a song, come take a song with the, the right-wing people. So their role is obvious in the open. What else? Whether or not the coup in the evening and the massacre was planned, it's unclear, but from the memoir of people in the among the ruling circle and evidence here, evidence that it looks like both were planned. Of course, they can't plan October 6th massacre, but they prepare to take opportunity when opportunity arises. 
So it looks like they have some kind of plan, and that plan, one of the memoir identified that involved the king in February of 1976. They already discussed the plan. The king even pointing to the, the person who became prime minister after the coup in October 6. Look at that person, Tani is maybe the good person. We cannot say that that memoir is 100% correct, but let's say the memoir was published. It's not secret document. Nobody say otherwise. So at least we can say for sure that there is something going on. I don't want to say that the, the person wrote that memoir and details memoir are correct. Let's say just enough that there's something going on. That's enough. The third thing, okay, the popular movement, the planning for the coup and possibly with the massacre. The third one is all the actual incident, event that lead up to the massacre. I mean, the return of Tanom in the process of becoming a monk, then continue the ordination process at the royal temple where the king ordained decades earlier. And in the ordination process, you must have a kind of a chair or the leader of, of the nine monk who ordained the, the new one, or in this case, who ordained Tanom. The chair monk is the king's personal tutor when the king ordained. And that monk later became supreme patriarch for many years. He just died, I think, about 10 years ago. So it looks like Tanam went straight from the airport with our security motorcade to that temple, royal temple, getting ordained by that important monk who have a good relation with the king at the same time later became supreme patriarch. The king and the queen came from the south straight to visit the monk. Not, not Tanam. We may say the whole conspiracy, the whole event that leading up to the killing, at least orchestrated with the palace involved. Now, having said that, are we sure that the memo is correct? Not 100% sure. Are we sure that they involve, is there any kind of evidence that we can catch the palace red-handed? No. The only thing for sure is their role in organizing the village girl. One more piece. Last piece, the main force that stormed into Tamasat that morning are police, different branches, different from police station, but the main force that came with heavy weapon is Border Patrol Police, or to be exact, the Peru. The Peru is, is a kind of anti-communist police unit who operated in Laos among the Hmong people. CIA supported, put it that way, from the mid-1970s, heavily armed, well-trained, operated in Laos, and later, after the, the operation was over, they became part of the border patrol police. So they are not patrol police. They're just like an army. The king and the queen has a good relationship with this unit because its base is close, a few kilometers away from the Hohin Palace. And they have good relationships since the mid-50s. That unit got the order to move at 2 o'clock in the morning to arrive exactly at 6 o'clock. At 2 o'clock at Tamasat, the shooting had not started yet. It means that what? They know what they are going to do in the morning. Who ordered that police force? There's no clear, no evidence even now. We cannot say the palace did. No, we don't know. But these are all kind of, you can say circumstantial, but let's say... Lot of evidence to, to think about.
you've written a lot in recent years on hyper-royalism in Thailand, and clearly that, that condition contributes to the stifling of discussion about pretty much any aspect of the monarchy that would be controversial or problematic. Given the changing political circumstances in Thailand, do you think that possibilities exist that we might get new interpretations, reinterpretations of the role of the monarchy in the events of that day in the coming years? It happened already. After 1996, 20th anniversary, we have been able to talk more and more and more, right? Uh, so it's not complete silence, but still difficult. Mainly we can talk about only violence, violence. We cannot talk about why or who. Since last year, the movement, the youth movement last year, uh, August 10, 2020, at Thammasat, uh, Rangsit campus, that they announced their demand, but uh, you out for the parliament to take up such and such issues and for the reform of the monarchy. Before they came up to the stage and announced that, they show the clippings of the massacre on a big screen, huge screen, anybody can see. At the same time, they play the royal song. Not royal anthem, no. The song that the king composed. The king composed a song for every major university. That's for Thomas's song, the king composed one. So play that song, nothing about politics at all, but on the screen is a massacre. And then they read the 10 points. In concrete points, what they demand, the monarchy should be reformed. I gave a talk a few times. I call it that smashing the ceiling. The ceiling, I said, until the end, the last page of the book was smashed on that day. So nowadays, I don't mean that there's no limit. There's still limit. Not partly because the less majesty law you can't say things outright, partly because, as I just said, to be fair, there is no final evidence got caught red-handed. No, and perhaps we can't find it. Your speaking to the events of 2020 sort of brings back the discussion to memorialization and commemoration and 1996 and thereafter because your discussion of that commemoration really, for me, brought home how the dynamics of unforgetting are enabled through all kinds of tensions and contradictions. Looking back, even from today, I mean, after event last year by the student, I think 1996 is like collective catharsis for the victim, put it that way. Call it collective catharsis of these people because it's, it's a time that we can, uh, finally, we can speak out. The public since then have known about October 6th a bit more. Then a few years ago at the 40th anniversary, we did it again, major event. This time not a catharsis anymore because we, we did it right here in 20 years ago. In, in 2016, people of younger generation started to involve, came to attend, I mean, at least to walk around the We Show, the, the exhibit of the what happened that day. By the way, since 1996, we have this event every year. Last year and this year, the commemoration, including this year, a few days ago, Oh, it's amazing. The whole thing from last year to this year was organized by themselves. This year is amazing enough because they interpret in their own way. They pay attention to the things that we and people of my generation, when we did uh, in 1996, we just show what happened, what happened, and mainly what happened, it means violence, brutality, uh, because that, that is how much we can say. So last year and this year is a kind of how to say the message passed to the next generation and they they know, they are aware. They look back 
make sense, make me make it meaningful in their own ways. Even compose many new songs, compose new stories. In a way, they renew the memory of October 6 in their own ways. This is how I see it. So this is the process. The commemoration got a lot of trouble from the start and have trouble every year because there are people who try to say that don't tell the public that we are radical students. Otherwise, they turn against us. Yes, there are some reasons for that, especially early on in the mid-1990s, because we're not sure how people would receive, would respond to. We came out and said, hey, well, we like socialism. We used to be communists. It's not clear. Some people want to play safe, want to portray a kind of romanticized version of student movement. On the other extreme, you can say, no, we have to observe the truth that we are all communists or we are dominated by the communists. The Communist Party play a big, significant role. My position in chapter six, uh, some other books tell that my position is something else, but that I think they misunderstood. My position is a bit more liberal. Don't suppress anything. Don't censor anything. Anybody want to memorize in whatever way, let them do it. That's still my position today. It means that I have my idea, I have my interpretation of October 6th, but in organizing, in encouraging people to speak out, in persuading them to confront their past, in trying to get them collectively to confront the past and get over it to some extent. I have in mind since 1996, don't impose the correct memory. Let people remember in the way they prefer because memory is a retrospective. Memory can change, not just memory fade, but because we change. We make different interpretations. So let people memorialize in many different ways, but don't try to suppress anything. That's my position. It doesn't mean that History cannot go on to fight among truth and untruth. No, you can't. It doesn't mean I don't have my position. I do have. But let's say to memorialize this thing, I think let people have freedom, have space to express their own memory. You mentioned truths and untruths, and and late in the book you discuss truths and half-truths, and you say that people in Thailand are socialized, if I can put it that way, into preferring half-truths to truths, and that's what renders certain topics acceptable and amenable to public discussion. But the problem for October 6 has been that there is no acceptable half-truth. Is that changing, or is the truth of October 6 becoming more acceptable now compared to previous? Mm -hmm. Yep, I can say that. Early on in 1996, we can talk about violence, brutality. I think it served some function. I got ridiculed even from my friends, especially among among the activists of later generation and some of those people who are more radical than me. I have to admit that I'm I'm not as radical anymore. They say that uh, I hide the truth. I don't. What I try to do is try to fight anybody who try to suppress, who try to censor. No, please not censor. Of course, we cannot speak everything because 112 is there, <laughs> Thai society is still there. But let's say as much as we can, try not suppress anything that people say, including conflict among us. Don't try to say that my memory is the only one the only version that should achieve or should get the right to represent the truth of the past. No, I'm just one. 
and the radical, the communist, uh, whatever, go ahead, present your own memory, it's fine. Including the other side, the romantic side, no, students are not communists, we are idealists, we only want better society, blah, 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 because that's not false either. They just don't try to speak anything too specifically. But let them say but also Thai society, there are so many other conditions that affect or that shape what cannot be remembered. For example, in 1996, no matter how much we want to say that don't romanticize us, we are the leftists, we are dominated by the communists or not, that is debatable, but we can't deny we are leftists. The news report who try to help us. They all depict our picture in the romanticized version because they are afraid of if they report as a leftist, the public would not accept, would not welcome the memory of October 6. In the book, there is a one thing I call memory of the October 16 incident that never exists because people mix up October 14 and October 6. October 1473, October 676. A narrative of October 16 event was even developed in public knowledge, which is all false. Many people of my my friends, we are angry when people make mistakes. After a while, I realized, yeah, there is reason why such a narrative emerged. The false narrative of the October event emerged. And I explained in the book. I think in the end, the main message I want to say, and I hope the book did say that, is the whole Thai society. Can't forget it, can't remember it. Try to be evasive, don't tackle it, but yet they can't. Try to remember, they don't know what meanings they should give to the event. It doesn't fit any national narrative, local narrative, even personal narrative is traumatic. It is not easy. Until there's some closure, such as recognition by the people of the later generation, recognition by the public, not just catharsis that we talk, but they recognize, they respond that they hear us, they know. What else? Such as one day, if there is a way to bring justice to all the death in this case, I don't mean to belittle the commemoration, especially the, the past few years. That's amazing. Some of my friends even say they can die peacefully now. But let's say we all know that there is another step. October 6, 1976 was not the only event, not in the bloodshed. Some people just say in the past 30, 40 years, there are four major huge bloodshed, and maybe not as brutal as October 6, 76. But the number of casualties, the number of deaths is even more. Thailand don't know how to deal with this incident. Try to avoid all the time. The death and the brutality and the wrongdoing of every incident in the past 40 years, they are all ghosts that have haunted Thai society. Thai society still try not to remember. But at the same time, they cannot forget those incidents either. October 1973, May 1992, and 10 years ago in April and May 2010. The book is already having some effects on how people are speaking and thinking about these issues in Thailand. How has it been received there generally? Have you had conversations with people reading or working in English about it? And is it being translated into Thai? 
No, because over the years I have written a number of articles on October 6th. In Thai, I, I published a book in 2015, I think. It's very well received because it's right at the time that people talk more, people interested more. I would say that my book helped them systematize or put their memory in order uh, because this is the way the book interact with the public knowledge anyway. So the book in Thai helped. On the chapter that I mentioned that I searched for my friend's body, I wrote that piece in Thai after I published a Thai book, so I wrote as a separate article. So over the years and also during... The commemoration, many years I appear, I show up in public. I think the public learn mostly from Thai, not from the English book. But this English book, uh, a lot of chapters, maybe half of them are not in Thai. Partly because there are information that the Thai public might know or can find from other sources. But anyway, I put together my interpretation, my analysis. Like chapter two, among the 13 questions, I never put in Thai. Well, if not in Thai, then perhaps in Japanese, hopefully, since I know that you have a strong and enthusiastic following there in Japan where you spent some time while you were working on this book. A last question. Is this your last book in English? There was, as you already indicated, a long time passing between the first classic text and this new very significant one. Is there another book for us to look forward to, or is that it? I don't know. I wrote in this book, you know, to I, I retire to write this book. Because by that time, I began to lose confidence that I can pull it off. So I think we need drastic measure. Quit to write this one. At least I gain a little bit more confidence that, yeah, I can finish it in a year, <laughs> a little over a year. But then at the same time, after retirement, I spend much more attention writing in time. I translated my article. I wrote many more articles altogether, collections of articles translated and including one in Thai and translated from English. Four more volumes during I was in Japan. You can say cliche like uh, serve the country. No, I don't care much, but I want to communicate with the Thai public more. October 6 is one of my seven books. In Thai. Two are about more current politics. The rest are more history, about 19th century, early 20th century history, about history, historical methodology, blah, 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 blah. I want to communicate. I want to, to leave something in Thai. Even the last thing, a uh, major thing I'm working, Nick, you know, working on legal history, I finished in Thai first. And then I, I'm thinking about maybe turn to English, but I have to say that not the strong commitment. I still have something more to do in Thai. I might have to push you to work on the English in that project as well. Talk Thai with Chukun. Thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast to talk with an English language audience about your remarkable and moving new book, Moments of Silence. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And we will link the documentation of October 6 website from the New Books website for interested listeners who may not have caught the address earlier. And listeners, if the episode was of interest to you, then you may also like to check out the interview that I did with Duncan McCargo on fighting for virtue, justice and politics in Thailand, or with Tyrrell Haberkorn on In Plain Sight, Impunity and Human Rights in Thailand. These are just a couple of the hundreds of interviews in Southeast Asian Studies available to you right now on the New Books Network website or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. 